0: This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.
1: So anyway, the Inquisition is very serious business. Uh, And 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 undoubtedly, it, it frightened people. And the Inquisition is one of the main reasons why that the Italian Reform movement... People don't like to talk about an Italian Reformation or an attempted Italian Reformation. Uh, And I'm I'm a little leery about that, but there really was a Reform movement that had a, a theological orientation oriented toward Luther. I mean, Luther's books infiltrated into Italy... Uh, there were people in high, high places who were reading Luther and who were teaching Lutheran ideas. This is this is wonderful stuff. But Peter Martyr had become the abbot of a large city in Italy. And he set up a school where he taught reform theology as a Catholic theologian. So Peter Martyr was a part of a real, live movement that had uh, so, uh, numbered among its adherents people in very high places. So there was the a, a, a start of a reform movement. But in 1542, that is pretty much destroyed because they bring in the Inquisition. And if you knew what was good for you, you would either recant, or run and Peter Martyr and Okino ran the other thing to mention pretty quickly is the index Uh, we all are well aware that the printing press very much served the purposes of Protestantism that was a technological development that enabled Luther's ideas and Calvin's ideas to get out among the people and to gain adherence. So, since this was a major uh, organ for the propagation of Protestantism, the Counter-Reformation responded by establishing an index, namely, a list of prohibited books. In other words, the Catholics said, you can't read certain books if it's written by a, a, a Protestant we can put you in prison for that. It's a very serious matter. So they established a list. So the index of prohibited books is a list of books that people were not permitted to read. Now it was true that theologians could get special permission to read the books of heretics in order to refute them. But uh, this is this is the 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 attempt of the Counter-Reformation to deal with this great tool that Luther and the others used, namely the printing press, to spread their ideas through books and writings. The first index came out in 1543 and the definitive index came out in 1559. Uh, And what's interesting is you find in the index, remember I talked about the Catholic Reformation, all those guys who had certain sympathies like Contarini uh, and Erasmus and a number of others. Well, things are getting so uh, uh, intensified by the late 1540s, early 1560s, 1559, 1560s, that even the writings of those who were Catholic reformers are now put on the index. People like Erasmus and others who were still good Catholics, who still would not leave Rome, but they had just—they had just had the, a tinge of too much sympathy for the Catholics, and so their books were forbidden to be read. So that tells you that there's a, there's a there's a growing hardness, a hardening of the categories on the part of uh, the Catholics here. You see me? See this? This idea. So the index becomes a tool of counteracting uh, the the propaganda and the writings of the. the uh, Protestants. So the index prevented people from reading. The Inquisition forced many people to recant or to run. One other quick little note here. I've mentioned that the Nicomedites. Did I spell that right? I don't think I did. Anyway. Uh, this is a term coined, I think, by Calvin. Uh, and again, this gets back to the earlier comment about a Italian reform movement. Uh, Calvin was well aware that there were significant numbers of people in Italy, as well as other places, but principally Italy, who essentially held to Protestant theology. And, I mean, he'd been with Okino, he knew Peter Martyr, and, it, and, and it knew the situation. And so he coined this term for those people who were really Protestants, but remained uh in Italy, and he chastised them very strongly. I I, I sometimes wonder if if he's too harsh. Uh, it's pretty difficult to leave your home and your family. Yeah, yeah these are folk who privately had gotten a hold of Calvin stuff, or had heard Peter Martyr preach, or Okino, or some of these other folk, and had basically personally. Uh, believed these kinds of ideas, the Protestant ideas, but they did not leave the church. They continued to go to Mass. They continued to, to go to church and do all the things that good Catholics do. And and Calvin very strongly chastises them. And again, they had to go underground because of the Inquisition in 1542. That really was a defining point in the so-called Italian Reform Movement. Uh, there were still some folks who stayed uh, Even after the Inquisition, but uh, they had to be very quiet, and Calvin didn't like it. Well, what happens when you have a strong Protestantism when it meets face to face a resurgent Roman Catholicism? War. That's what happens when you have all of this religious foment. Uh, In the wake of Trent, now that theology was much more defined with the militancy of the Jesuits, with the Inquisition, you have more persecution and more rebellion, more tension as a result. Uh, We find in a number of places where we had major, massive warfare between Protestants and Catholics. I'm not going to go into much detail, but I just want to mention this to you pretty quickly in France France was one of those major battlegrounds between Protestants and Catholics as I mentioned earlier there was a time around 1560 when there were upwards to 2 million Calvinists in France they even had a national synod uh, all underground of course (coughs) They they had significant influence these later became the Huguenots That's how you spell the term. H-U-G-U-E-N-O-T-S. Those were the Protestants. Typically Calvinist, mostly Calvinistic in their theology. All of this, one of the major flashpoints was the so-called St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in August of 1572. There had been previous battles and wars and problems and so forth. But this was in 1572 the real flashpoint. What had happened is that uh, Catherine de Medici she was the queen mother. She's the, the mother of the king. King Charles IX in France now. And her daughter, Margaret, who was Roman Catholic, was marrying the Huguenot, King of Navarre, which was essentially located within what we would consider now France. But it was a kingdom within France. Henry, uh, I don't, just Henry. Henry the Huguenot. And they were all having, going to have this great big wedding in Paris in August of 1572, which meant that there were going to be a lot of Catholics attending as well as a lot of Huguenot leaders. Now, Charles the Ninth was, was not terribly bright. Very young. Some people think he was insane. But easily manipulated by his mum And Catherine, who was really the power behind the throne... Decided that the only way to deal with the Huguenots. She tried other things was to kill them. So she went to her mentally unstable son, the king, and told him that she had uncovered a plan by the Huguenots to murder the royal family. And she got him to authorize a retali a preemptive strike. And he gave his formal authorization and she took that and organized a a plot so that when all the people, the Protestant leaders, came to celebrate the wedding of the Huguenot King of Navarre, she unleashed her people and they murdered, they slaughtered a a whole great number of Protestants, particularly in Paris, but even in other places as well. They killed now the leader the, no, no, he actually converted on the spot <laughs> But this was the man uh, Caligny was the uh, was the leader of the Huguenots in France. Admiral Caligny, I think that's the right pronunciation. and he, what had been uh, was lying in bed and the assassins came in, killed him and threw his body out on the streets. and, and, and the blood lust, the, the people revolted and they went around trying to kill every Huguenot they could. They blamed uh, all of the woes of the country on the Huguenots. and there was a bloodletting throughout France. Now of course in retaliation, The Protestants organized themselves. They didn't kill all the leaders. And that led to a bloody war of 30 plus years in France. Intermittent war for nearly 30 years. So this was just... St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre was the flashpoint that ignited uh, this warfare of 30 years. The Netherlands is another flashpoint where Catholic met Protestant in warfare. From 1560 to 1609, you have intermittent warfare. Uh, the Netherlands was ruled by the king of Spain. But there were a number of rebels and Calvin, and particularly this is Calvinism, both the Huguenots and in the Netherlands. You know, the, this is one thing, i us make a, a parenthetical remark here. But there's an aggressiveness to Calvinism in the latter part of the 16th century that you don't find in Lutheranism. Uh, The Lutherans tended to work in terms of converting the king. Uh, The the Calvinists are a lot more aggressive. Uh, And there's some talk there. I mean, it's hard to know for sure that Calvin may have been involved or gave some sort of loose support for assassination attempts against the French king, uh, you know, there's there's some speculation about that. Uh, he certainly sent in a whole army of missionaries to try to convert the king and others. Uh, so you have you have a lot of tension there. Uh, and also in the Netherlands you have you have a, a fairly significant group of Calvinists beginning to emerge who are much more militant. Uh, Phil II now is the king of Spain. And in order to, to quell these rebellious Calvinists, he sent the Duke of Alva. The Duke of Alva who will live forever in the annals of cruelty. He was a man who was determined to crush at any cost these rebels, these Calvinistic rebels. He established the infamous Council of Blood, which was simply another name for for a, uh, a sort of inquisition. He cruelly persecuted all Protestants. And of course... These rebellious Calvinists organized and led a rebellion. There was war. The war went on for, we're looking at intermittently for 30 or 40 years again. So, the last half, virtually, of the 16th century and early part of the 17th century, Europe is consumed with these religious wars. The mother of all of the religious wars occurred from 1618 to 1648. The so-called 30 Years' War. Uh, This is principally in Germany, but involved a number of other places. This was a violent war. Uh, Germany, Central Europe, was utterly devastated as a result. Uh, it's, It's one of the worst Kinds of wars. It it began in Bohemia, and in fact, here's I have a statistic for you. A couple of them. Uh, It's estimated there were something like thirty five thousand villages and cities in Bohemia. By the end of the Thirty Years' War, only six thousand cities and villages remain untouched by the war. They weren't destroyed. You're talking a vast majority of the cities in Bohemia were leveled. The total population of the Holy Roman Empire was reduced by two-thirds. You're talking massive bloodletting in the Thirty Years' War. It It is considered one of the most vicious wars in history in terms of the number of the loss. Now, included in the warfare, of course, are things uh, like famine and plague. Uh, part of the warfare sometimes is to encircle a city and cut off all food supplies so famine sets in. Uh, sometimes, and it's not even deliberately, not even a deliberate blockade, but when in warfare, uh, crops are burned. All kinds of things. So, so included in all of this there are famine and then you have the, the there's always this, this problem of the plague coming in. But as a result of war and, and things surrounding that, you have two-thirds of the population destroyed, of dead in this 30-year period. Central Europe became a ghost town in this 30-year period. Agriculture was completely ruined. Industry and trade collapsed. Schools and universities closed. Europe even in the wake of World War II, you don't find too much comparable to the devastation brought by the Thirty Years' War. Why was there this war? Why was it so bad and so vicious? Well, remember back in 1555, the Peace of Augsburg, 1555. And there it was decided that they would adopt the principle of quius regio eius Religio, That is, whoever is the ruler, he determines the religion. Well, that's really, if you think about it, not a very workable solution. I mean, you have people who were living under a Catholic prince who were Protestants. Now, it's hard to leave where you've always grown up, where your farm is or where your village is or whatever. It's hard to leave that. And so what happened is persecution resulted because of this formula. You have a Catholic prince and a Protestant minority and they are persecuted. They are not granted religious toleration within that boundary. So it's a tense situation. Furthermore, when you have this kind of setup, you may in fact have a Catholic prince succeeded by a Protestant. If if the king can be converted... Or his, and his brother is converted to another religious viewpoint the people are thrown into turmoil one day it's the law that you have to be a Catholic the next day after the king dies and is succeeded by his Calvinist brother you have to be a Protestant or a Protestant in fact in the Palatinate, Palatinate which is around Bavaria people had to change their religious beliefs three times in 25 years Can you imagine the tension that would bring? You have to become a hypocrite or you have to suffer uh, persecution again. You're on again, off again kind of stuff. Three times in 25 years in what we would now call Bavaria, the Palatinate. So when you have this kind of, of formula to deal with, uh, these strong religious beliefs in a place like Germany sooner or later it's going to come to a head and it did and it with a real viciousness the war began in Bohemia uh, reformed doctrines in particular had started to make headway in Bohemia well the king of Bohemia was Ferdinand II who was also the Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II the King of Bohemia and the Holy Roman Emperor. And he was a zealous Catholic. And he persecuted Protestants in Bohemia and in Germany to the full extent that he could. At one point, uh, the Reformed Protestants arranged to have a meeting with some representatives from Frederick II in Prague, to talk about how to resolve these tensions. So you have in Prague a meeting between some Reformed Protestants and the representatives of the Catholic King, Ferdinand II. The group came together, they began talking, and they became so angry at one another that the Protestants jumped up, grabbed the the Roman Catholic representatives, and threw them out the window. Uh, I don't think they were killed, but the mobs became enraged. And next thing you know, there's some deaths occurring. And of course, Ferdinand II declared utter war upon these rebellious Protestants. Again, tending to be Calvinistic. Again, the Calvinists are much more aggressive in their views than, than the Lutherans, generally speaking. General revolt followed. In Bohemia... And the conflict spread then to Germany, to the Swedes, and to Denmark, to Sweden. So we're talking, uh, you know, a real multinational kind of warfare going on that went on for 30 years, back and forth, back and forth. And every time they go across Germany, they devastate it from one side, and the next they go back the other way and devastate it again so it was really a, a terrible terrible time finally the war sapped the energy of europe entirely and just just to bear in mind you know we've had we've had wars in the netherlands now for 30 years before this and in france for 30 years before that so all of europe is engulfed in bloodshed for a very extended period of time finally in 1648 The Peace of Westphalia is signed in 1648. The Peace of Westphalia. I think I've spelled that, Westphalia. This is one of the crucial uh, points in the history of Europe. If you go and pick up a, a book on the Western civilization, they will always talk about the peace of Westphalia as a major watershed event. This is the point at which the religious wars ended. And it now what happens is Europe enters into a new attitude toward religion. Uh, it, it, in fact, I'm going to say here that because of all the bloodshed, it's been going on now for the better part of half a century leads to a a feeling that religion leads to bloodshed. So what do we do? Let's get rid of religion. And so then we have the advent of the Enlightenment. A whole new, different way of thinking. a Generally speaking, an anti-faith, an anti-religious movement. And so the watershed event between The period of time where religion was very vital to a time when religion is self-consciously denigrated and pushed down and pushed out of culture as much as possible. This is the the line of demarcation. The peace of Westphalia. It is a crucial uh, point that divides Europe, which is... Preoccupied with religion from a Europe that no longer wants religion to be a major part of their life generally speaking in other words the people were tired of war and they wanted peace almost at any cost this proved to be that is the 30 years war was the last of the great wars of religion in Europe Brian. And how you push the political aspect of
0: the information and whatnot, it just seems like people are dying for the definition of justification, or is it politically fine? Absolutely. I mean,
1: you know, a lot of people probably, you know, I think what happened is you had some people who were really concerned about the truth, but you know, after a while, you, you forget what you're fighting about, and it's just us against them. They're trying to hurt me, so I have to fight back and defend myself. Uh, my fear, as I look and, and analyze all of this, it does become politics, power politics, in large part. There are still people who are, you know, deeply committed, uh, but more often than not, you find people who are fighting, and, and so this sort of gives rise to, to certain kinds of nationalism. You you start developing a self-identity and the other guys have no right to tell me what to believe or do. And so you have... This is the period of time when when nationalism is on the the increase as well. Big picture now. Broad brush strokes. You have an established, institutionalized Roman Catholicism. Luther comes along and leads a revolt of sorts. Christianity is divided between Catholic and Protestant on doctrinal grounds primarily. But that has political implications, particularly as the Peace of Augsburg, 1555, when particularly in Germany, a principle is established that whoever rules the principality determines the religion. So you have in Germany some princes who are Lutheran, some princes who are Catholic. And however they go, the people have to go. And that creates all kinds of difficulties, particularly when you have uh, the successor of one prince bring in a different religion. And so the people find themselves in this enormous quandary. What do I do? Do I flee? Do I give up my business, my family, everything, and and move across the border to a, to a friendly principality? Uh, that was not a very uh, profitable or useful principle to be enacted. Uh, And pretty soon, with the Jesuits at the lead, there is a counter-reform, a fighting back of Rome against Protestantism. And that eventually erupts in war after war after war. They talk about the wars of religion in Europe that go on from about, I don't know, 1550 to about 1648. And you have approximately 100 years where most of Europe is enveloped in warfare. And I mentioned last time the so-called 30 Years' War as one of the most bloody, the most devastating wars in the history of Europe. Uh, in some places, as I mentioned, upwards to two-thirds of the population died either directly because of war or because of the aftermath of war, namely famine and plague. So we now are in a Europe that is devastated. It is a war. It is a it is a Europe that is desperately exhausted from war and particularly exhausted from Wars about religion. And that leads us to finally the Treaty of Westphalia, 1648. I said it last time. I'll say it again. This is a crucial marker in European history. The peace, the Treaty of Westphalia, 1648. A key marker. This ended the 30 years war as well as a century of religious strife. Here's the point, after 1648, we can say in a general sense that religion is no longer important enough in European history to fight a war over. After 1648, religion no longer becomes the prime reason for warfare after all of this bloodshed, all of this turmoil, all of this upheaval in Europe now, we're going on for, well, 150 years. At the end of all this, people are simply exhausted. And you find that after the Treaty of Westphalia, 1648, that no longer is religion the primary cause for war. People have decided I'm not going to shed my blood or my children's blood over religion anymore. That is the prevailing kind of attitude. Now, there, of course, are wars after 1648. But what you will find, by and large, is that religion is not the key factor. Now, we can find probably exceptions to that rule. But I'm saying generally.
0: Tim? Was religion manipulated by sheer power grab.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm just saying that religion is not the primary factor anymore. Deep convictions that we as Protestants are right and you Catholics are wrong or vice versa. But even
0: during the 100 years war, wasn't it frequently the case that religion itself was more or less a a tool of manipulation
1: by believers? Yes, there's no question about that. That happened many times. Uh, But what you find, though, before this 1648, religion is taken very, very seriously. It is viewed generally. Certainly it's manipulated by other persons. But there is a deep-seated, pervasive conviction that religion is something it's worth dying for. What happens is you find toward the middle of the 17th century a new mood, as I call it, begins to take hold in Europe. And religion, as important as it may be for some... There is there's a there's a a point of exhaustion that has set in, and there's a new a a, a more neutral attitude toward religion. It's just not worth dying for anymore. Now, individuals, of course, but generally speaking, there's this new attitude that you find. Uh, There is now a conscious attempt on the part of many powers those in power in power to create a culture a society that is religiously neutral in the aftermath of all of this bloodshed all of this turmoil there is a concerted growing effort on the part of intellectuals and politicians to create a society, that was religiously neutral. A new mood, as I said, began to shroud Europe. A mood in which religious confrontation was to be avoided as much as possible. Religion is simply not worth dying for anymore. Men were tired of killing each other over different interpretations of the Bible, it seems this new mood and mood is a deliberately vague term Uh, but it's a broad term and it's this new mood that gave birth in the late 17th and throughout the 18th century this movement that we call the enlightenment it is it set the ground for this for this move and it's during this period in the wake of all of these wars of religion, we now see in Europe a gradual slide into secularism. The effects of which are still with us today. Are you clear with the picture? A lot of warfare, a lot of upheaval on the basis of religion. People in Europe have now reached the saturation point they say we're no longer willing to die for that we want to have a new society a new culture where you can believe whatever you want but let's don't kill each other over it that's the new attitude and it's that attitude that begins to open ever so slightly the slide into secularism so when we get to the mid when we get to 1648 mid 17th century We are on the threshold of the modern secular era. Now, there's a question I want to address. I'm still now in intro and talking generally. Uh, When we talk about the Enlightenment, uh, one is also starting to talk about and use the word modern. There does seem to be, in fact, I'm going to argue that there is a very close relationship between what we call modern and this intellectual historical movement known as the Enlightenment. Now, this applies also to Christianity. And I think that we can point to this period called the Enlightenment as the beginning of what may be called modern Christianity. Modern now has a very specific sort of of notion. Uh, Scholars debate uh, and continue to debate this question of when the modern era began. You have uh, the early ages, you have the middle ages, and then you have the modern era. And there's lots of debate as to when the modern era began. And the debate centers on the Reformation period. Did the modern era begin with the Reformation or did it begin with the Enlightenment? That's the major issue. I'd make sure I knew that. When did the modern era begin? Was it with the Reformation or was it with the 17th, 18th century Enlightenment? How you decide what is modern uh, has been the subject... A, a, a great many debates, there are many variables, and it really centers on how you define modern. How do we define modern? Well, by way of, of getting to that a little bit, I want to point you to the classic debate over modernity, or when did the modern era begin. Uh, the debate centered on two people, Wilhelm Dilty and Ernst Trolch. Their dates are up there, 1883 to 1911, Dilty And Trolch, 1865 uh, to 1923. First, Dilty. Dilty felt that the Reformation was, quote, the religious expression of the Renaissance. And therefore, in his mind, the Reformation was the beginning of, of the modern era. Uh, some people will center on Luther as the first modern man, others will focus on Calvin as the first modern man. So, Dilty argued that the Reformation was the point uh, the, the first beginning point of what we call the modern era. So he felt that the, religious, that the Reformation was the religious expression of the Renaissance. Now, that partly has to do with his understanding of the Renaissance, which for him was a focus on the individual, man being the measure of all things, that kind of idea. Uh, that idea has come under some scrutiny in the last 25 or 30 years, but that's another question, actually. Dilti argued that the Reformation freed man from the external bondage of the church. And that in insofar as the Reformation freed man from this medieval institution called the church, man was liberated and free, and now he enters into what he calls the modern age. This is, this is a, a distinctive uh, point of departure where he talked about the modern man as opposed to the medieval man. The medieval person is always under authority and principally the authority of the church as well as the state. Says Delti, uh, the Reformation liberated man from that kind of external bondage. Delti also argued there was, from the Reformation period, a certain inner freedom, an inner freedom to think differently about religion, so externally, you could now attend a different church, says Dilte. Internally, you were now given the freedom to think differently about religion. You had the, the right, because of Luther and Calvin, to rethink the question of the sacraments. To rethink the question of justification by faith. And the third thing that Delti noted that indicates that the Reformation is the point at which the modern world began, is he said the Reformation validated the secular life. Now what does he mean by that? Well, you will remember that fundamentally characteristic of the Middle Ages is this notion that if you really want to serve God, if you really want to ensure that you will get to heaven, then you go and you join a monastery and take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. The Reformation comes along and says, "You can, by, by joining a monastery, by becoming celibate, that doesn't necessarily by itself get you any closer to God. You can be a good plumber, a good miller, a good farmer, a good peasant, and still be just as close to god as that guy who's in a monastery so the secular life that is non religious vocations are just as valid as the clerical vocation and so there really was this is not really under any really debate there was a secularization not in a negative sense but that the that the that the non clerical life was just as valid as the clerical life in the middle ages there was a great disparity. The monastic life was the ideal. The secular life was way down here below. And what the Reformation did is it said, nope, one is not necessarily better than the other. You can get to heaven by being a good faithful peasant just as easily as you can by being a good faithful priest. So he felt that by giving credibility and validity to your secular calling or your secular vocation, uh, that that validated the secular life, says Dilty. So, according to Dilty, the Reformation is a decisive break with the medieval period, and that it fundamentally contributed to and gave rise to what we know as the modern world. Now, notice. That the key distinctive feature of what is modern, according to Dilty, is this idea of freedom, both ecclesiastical freedom and intellectual freedom, and also inherent in his understanding of what it means to be modern is this idea of being out from some authority. It is anti authoritarian. Uh, we are free to do our own thing. We, don't, we are no longer in bondage to these institutions called the church and the state. We are free to think as we wish. That's the, the, the kinds of ideas that for Dilty are associated with the modern era.
0: This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.